I should check. Ah, ah there we go. All right, cool. <clears throat> hey, this is the DM Discourse, a podcast about D&D focused on the experience at the table from behind the screen. I'm your host, Daryl, and today I'm talking about uh, dungeons. Only dungeons, no dragons. Come back later if that's what you want. You want dragons. It's not this one. It's the dungeon one. So we're just going to... From the writings of historical Enchantress Iprix, records located in the Academia de Capital, year 88 of Prism Ascension. On the subject of Fen's Keep, specifically the colloquial Halls Under the Hill. There are countless wonders throughout the Drifting Isles, our neighboring marsh to the south that seems to ebb and flow different with each passing year. In no other place is this strange nature better epitomized than the expansive network of tunnels beneath Fen's Keep. Both natural and crafted works have been documented to exist in this place, but there is little to connect any of them together. None of these accounts, whether from various adventurers or fellow academics, corroborate to give a consistent understanding of this place. After years of studying and research while pursuing a thesis, I considered this location of worthy note and made my way along the coast to the keep, further inland past brigands populating that accursed swamp, only to find one such of their kind in charge of the keep itself. It was of no matter. I had enough know-how to keep myself safe while in town, and funds to hire a small group of local mercenaries for my preliminary expedition. However, it took three weeks to pass before I came to realize the danger of the, to use the locals' language, halls under the hill. When I asked the villagers about it, I was given clear directions on how to enter, beneath the keep on the northern end, along the moat that runs the course of the island it's built on. Simple to find, yet each one I talked to saw fit to warn me, usually unprompted about the darkness or evil or some other such folklore nonsense lurking below their town. But surely, if there was any such danger, it would not make sense to live there in the first place, I informed them. And by now, the town would have long been destroyed. I soon discovered their worries were well-founded, even if that entity that exists in those wicked depths is for now content to hold sway over its domain. I will not bother recounting the layout or encounters of each particular room in this summary. The following documentation included with this should suffice, as I spent hours cataloging details of each space we explored. Plus, I have some notes referencing other experiences in the halls, all different, all bearing similar ill stories. I will simply tell you mine, and how it led me to leave that place the very same night seeking shelter behind city walls again, something I have learned to never take for granted. (laughs) 
Yeah, whatever uh, the reason, I think um, I just moved on away from using dungeons as a main driving force in my campaigns. I know that isn't true for how it used to be for me, um, and it's definitely not true for a good majority of DMs out there. Dungeons have just always been part of the shared language of D&D, it's even in the name. Uh, whether you're running or playing, there's something near mythic about the idea of the dungeon. It's a collection of rooms holding an endless variety of dangers and treasures, all for your adventuring parting's taking, should you simply dare to go in and risk it. And I think for a long time that the idea of the dungeon was the driving force of wanting to play D&D. It gives you that power fantasy of getting to sling spells down corridors, lighting a bunch of cultists on fire, and uh, step into the shoes of a different character, um, become that different person as a possibility of escapism. <clears throat> it, uh, much like the game, has this shared idea that's easy for people to attach to. Uh, I mean, sure, it's easy to just think of a hole in the ground that has a bunch of different monsters, um, from books to fight, just waiting there for you. And it's definitely a great place to start your campaign. You've come together to see what you can accomplish as a group. And what better way to test that than heading into this dangerous location that the locals speak of in whispers and have since for decades, if not uh, centuries. And that's more or less what happened to the, as they were beginning to identify themselves as, the crew of the Iknan. Um, the party, in this case. The story of that is that the monk Pedwar showed up drunk and wrote Nancy upside down on the side of the boat, hence the uh, Ickman of it. So far, the campaign has been a series of scripted interactions for them. They had a goal, but so long as they entertained the ideas I put before them, they were sure to reach the destination without any real dangers. Of course, uh, it wouldn't be fun if they just happened to die within the first sets of sessions or before any real encounters, right? Uh, so anyway, they got hired by the Baron they met last time to go investigate these halls under the hill, which is a series of dungeons from the supplement I'm using to form a home base for my campaign. It's got the entire village detailed as well as a good place for adventurers to go and throw themselves at in hopes of succeeding and gaining some levels. Each of the levels has a different set of creatures and challenges, so it provides a unique flavor each time that they would go further in. Um, and as an aside, they are also each made by a different creator in the RPG uh, hobby business? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's no cohesive theme to them overall, other than a subversive hostility that I attribute to a pseudo-intelligence of the swamp itself, which is... I guess partially uh, myself inserting my own fictions into uh, into the supplement to tie it together back to my campaign and my ideas. Um, and that provides flavor as they try making their way to the bottom of the dungeon, trying to figure out whatever it is that actually lives there. I definitely have a different style of the game I run since I'm playing online rather than when I used to play in person. At a physical table, I have the classic setup of a grid, map, minis, all that. For online, I've really shrunk down what I've done from there. If they're in a city, I'm usually just putting up some concept art that shows the idea I have to reflect what I imagine it looks like. And for a dungeon, I'll slap like a different JPEG of uh, maps in there or maybe uh, room pictures that show the room decorations um, and just hide what they haven't seen from the party. Um, as they go through the dungeon, I'll reveal more, but rather than using minis for the individual party members, I started having just a single icon that shows which room the party is in uh, currently. 
I was worried that maybe this would discourage them from being more explorative, but that hasn't been this case so far, thankfully. They're happy to just take the initiative for themselves and go investigate things on their own if they want to. I do end up trying to run a dungeon later on with individual minis, but I'll talk about that one uh, later down the road. In the meantime, it has worked pretty well for me just having them say, oh, I, I individually go to this room. As for the encounters, I take a similar minimalist approach, um, just using theater of mind. When I started with 4E, I used a grid and minis religiously, which I think there's a lot to 4E that lends itself to that grid-focused system. However, with 5E, I found that using theater of mind instead, where we just describe uh, the scenario between everyone here at the table rather than using the explicit grid, has tended to work better and much more my style as well. I also tend to be pretty generous to players anyway for distances they want to run or other actions they try to take. I think if I was playing in person, I'd go back to using miniatures and a grid more strictly, but I've just found it a lot easier and more enjoyable to run the game this way with uh, out a grid for now. And it's that's true for you and any other table. Run what's best for you and your group. Just because you see it done one way doesn't make it the right way and doesn't make it the way you need to run at your table. Although, funny enough, uh, it was seeing other groups play without a grid and miniatures, specifically the Acquisitions Incorporated C-Team podcast, uh, when I decided to make the switch for my home game. Even when I was playing in person, as the years went on, I saw that I was into the idea of using miniatures less and less even for combat. When my group had an encounter distance, it uh, seemed to matter less and less, and that may have more to say about my homebrew encounter design or my player's aptitude, but at a certain point, I just decided I wanted to work the game differently whenever I ran it. Right, the dungeon. Anyway, so the group makes their way around the back of Fen's Keep and makes their way to the first smaller room of this layer of it, uh, where they encounter two giant centipedes. Giant animals are a fairly common encounter in RPGs, so they didn't think anything of it as they pummeled these overgrown insects into mush, but these actually worked as watchers for the group that had already made it to the dungeon before them, a group of goblins working in servitude to the local hobgoblin group in town. They ran into the first members of this goblin group in the next room, uh, which was a two-floored square room with statues depicting Meriliths, which are a kind of uh, six-armed half-snake battle demon? Um, those statues were on the first floor, um, and then it had, like, a higher walkway around on the second floor. Um, the statues were nothing more than stone, but they found a half dozen goblins scattered between the two floors. I placed some on the bottom and some on the top, and since the group was successful in sneaking up on them, I gave them a chance to get even closer to try to make the odds more in their favor before the encounter even began. Unfortunately, the dwarf goofed the stealth roll, so from there it was just initiative. Being just a handful of goblins, the party was able to dispatch them pretty quickly as well, but they left one alive in order to do the time-honored tradition of interrogation. This particular goblin, Brog, would later join the crew, but for now was a bit miffed about these upstart adventurers coming down and killing all his friends in the midst of their job to do. However, the Batfolk cleric, Skji, had an inquisitorial style and was able to tease out of him the particulars of the goblins here in the dungeon. They found out they were looking for something for the hobgoblin leader in town, Mido. For his honesty, the group let him live for now, tied him up in one of the corners of the rooms, and let him be. From here, the path split five different ways. Two locked doors were on the top floor, 
to open pos- pas- eh, passages uh, on the first. And the uh, fifth way was a puzzle door decorated with slots small enough for gemstones and a cryptic message in ancient draconic giving away its hints. They would let her solve this door of seven stars, as it's called, but for now, since it blocked the path that would lead to the higher level content beneath uh, the dungeon, um, beneath this layer they were on, uh, it would stay locked for now, but pieces of its answer uh, would end up being collected throughout the dungeon floor. Specifically, they would find the gemstones of the different colors that would solve the riddle. Um, whatever path they took, also, they would eventually end up collecting these gemstones as well, um, and a full set of gemstones, which would make the Rembo, be the answer to opening the door. It's not the most advanced puzzle, but as the party would learn, still something to be taken seriously, especially when it ended up shocking them as they tried putting the gemstones in at a random pattern. But that's for later. For now, the group took one of the lower pathways, the one in the southeastern direction, which led to two unremarkable but classic encounters. The first was a room with a pit, and I quickly learned that having a flying player character would mean that this trope wouldn't work as well as it would with other groups. Um, But for the sake of the demonstration, it worked well enough to illustrate the kind of non-monster dangers they could encounter in a dungeon. I'm sure if the dwarf or tiefling led, they would have had a bit more issues with it, but um, they lucked out that time. Uh, the uh, room after had a long flowing fountain running the length of the room and a few sentient skeletons. Without a necromancer in sight, this hinted at some other kind of magical purpose to this place, something I continue to run with the more the party dug into it. And that's something I'm always a proponent for. If your group of friends is throwing some creative ideas at you that you hadn't thought of in the middle of the adventure, don't be afraid to mix it up just to give them a more satisfying conclusion or uh, journey to experience at the table. It's about the fun that you all have at the table. And if you think that your friends have something really neat, you can either slip it in easily uh, before they even get a chance to notice or resolve the story, or even save it for later. It's something that you could use as a developing plot point as the campaign goes on. But for now, the idea that there's a magical enchantment of some kind on the dungeon began to crystallize for them in the next few rooms that completed their circuit for the upper, or leading to the upper floor of the first split area that they encountered that group of goblins in. They ran into a statue of a demonic idol with writhing serpent legs and an avian head, obviously depicted uh, in a shrine or place of worship. Its eyes held some gems that were mundane but useful for the puzzle door I talked about earlier. It also ended up being the starting point of an ongoing joke with the drunken master dwarven monk Pedwar, who nailed his history check to have knowledge of this entity, Abraxas, a demon lord of knowledge. It's been a long time since this point in our campaign, but demons have become a focal point for it, and it kind of started here with that early planted seed, even before I had the slightest inkling the campaign would be about demons, or have demons, since I've always been iffy about direct planar intervention in my games. The rooms after started developing into a linear path that did, however, end up wrapping up one of the side quests that the party had gotten in town regarding a missing noble. Gar Hall Silvercrown had gone missing with his companions and were now twisted uh, into undeath by this haunting place that they had perished. The party um, had been worried about not running into this guy as soon as they picked up the quest, but I think that's another thing you can do if you're keen on adding a bunch of side quests, even if, you know, the... 
uh, book that you're playing doesn't have them directly, or you can insert it yourself. You can just add these quests uh, to the critical path of the players so that they don't need to go poking around as much as they think they do in order to complete it. They found Gaharl Silver Crown, Gar Garhol Silver Crown. They found Silver Crown um, in a tomb area with uh, himself turned into a white and two zombies, his companions. So they slew the lot of them, a pretty easy encounter, and then collected a noble's signet ring plus some more gems for trying the door. Um, the next, after that, they rushed through what would unmistakably be a dark room out of a horror game to complete the cycle of that leg of the dungeon and return back to their starting area. Their goblin hostage still tied up, waiting for someone to come by and help them. Um, so that's w one path that they could have taken. And likewise, as you'll see next week, the other one does loop around as well to give them different sets of encounters that lead back to this room. And that was just half of the first level of the dungeon. By my count, that should have only taken one session in itself. Um, since this particular dungeon wasn't very large, I figured they'd be done with it in one night. Um, but that's kind of how things work out. You'll likely always plan ahead of what your players will be able to accomplish in a single night, but that's a good thing. It's less prep for you and a chance to think about how to expand on the next segment for any good story opportunities. The group decided to take a short rest and recuperate with their hostage before proceeding to the next half of the dungeon, but uh, we'll talk about that next time. I hope my talk about dungeons has proven useful to some of you. It won't be the last time I talk about dungeons, but I figure it'll give you some idea about how I do it uh, well or poorly and some things that you could even bring to your table. But uh, hey, if you have any feedback to give me or thoughts you'd like to share, please do. You can reach me by email at dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com and on Twitter at dmdcpodcast. Thanks as always for listening, and please leave feedback for me on social media or on whatever platform it is that you're listening to, uh, or just tell your friends if you think my weird show is cool. It means a lot that you folks are out there uh, listening and interested in the strange stories that I'm making with my friends. Um, but that's it for now. Take care. Have a great week.